One Week Season. Saturday show with Hilo and Zandemir. Hilo had an emergency, so I will be taking the place of the man who will have more sagas this week than lineups. And we will live by his motto, make hay while the one shines. Good luck, Mark, in whatever it is that is keeping you from us. Hi, um, Zandemir, welcome to the show. I'm glad to join you and get an opportunity to do this with you, brother. It has been a while since we have been on a show together, Todd. It's good to hear, it's good to, uh, hear your voice. Thank you. So this is a very interesting slate, Zandemir. Um, and I guess the most important thing we need to talk about is, in general, we tend to not like to play running backs in the flex. Uh, but we have a plethora of great running back values this week. What is your 10,000-foot uh, view of this slate, and how are you looking at it? Yeah, this is it? like a running back slate, as some are. And if you look at if you look at projections, if you look at projected ownership, <clears throat> you see there's just a slew of strong running back plays from Jonathan Taylor at the way high end, um, down to some really strong value plays like Jamal Williams and James Conner and Antonio Gibson, um, <clears throat> possibly Sonny Michelle. I haven't seen any news on Daryl Henderson and if he's going to play or not. Um, but I, I think it's very much a slate in which three running backs is viable. Um, normally, I'm a wide receiver in the flex guy, but I think this is very much a slate where you can consider three running backs just because there are so many good ones in good positions. Um, <clears throat> That also, if playing, if yeah, playing, um, let let's start with single and th for our single and three entry people. If you were playing single and three entry this week, X, uh, which which guys would you look at um, the most, and which guys do you think might be a trap at yeah, the running back position? I'll, I'll first note that I think because there are so many really strong running backs on the slate. Uh, this doesn't feel like a slate to me <clears throat> to take stabs at sort of more uh, dubious running back plays, hoping to capture, uh, you know, rare ceiling performances. And so, like, for example, Miles Sanders is kind of the same play as he was last week, um, where he was really, really highly owned. But this week, the running back uh, slate is so different that I just I don't think it makes I wasn't really big on Miles Sanders last week, but I think it makes no sense to play Miles Sanders this week. And that's just my play style because there are so many good ones. Like there's so many guys he has to outscore. So I think the core, um, <clears throat> excuse me, God, just a little like coffee. Uh, the core for me, uh, James Conner is just underpriced for his workload, right? He, he's, a, he's locked into a 20 plus touch workload that we've seen since Chase Edmonds went down. Um, Jamal Williams should be you know, locked into a 20 plus touch workload in actually a surprisingly good matchup where Detroit's run blocking has actually been pretty strong and the Minnesota D-line is not. Um, so Jamal Williams is a, strong, a really strong locked in workload kind of play. Antonio Gibson with no JD McKissick. Um, and we actually finally saw last week <clears throat> Um, even when McKissick was still in the game, we saw Gibson getting more schemed pass game work, 
which is interesting because that had been talked about, like lots of coach speak about that in the off season about them wanting to use McKiss or Gibson, like a bell cow and using him a lot in the passing game. And it just hadn't materialized. And then last week it showed up. Um, Elijah Mitchell is probably one of the top three or four carry projections on the slate, though the pass game works a little hit or miss. Um, and then uh, at the high end, you know, Jonathan Taylor is the stud of the slate with the, probably the highest raw projection of any player on the slate. Uh, and then Alexander Madison, and the sites did a pretty good job of pricing up Alexander Madison with Dalvin Cook out, but he's still, 7,600 is still cheaper than we're used to paying for Dalvin Cook, and he's basically Dalvin Cook. Um, he's actually gotten more touches in his two starts than we've ever seen Dalvin Cook get in any game this year. I think he's, I think he's had like 32 touches in each of his two starts. Um, this is off the top of my head, but something around there, which is ridiculous. So like those guys are the core for me. And then there's a few guys that kind of float a little more around the core. Leonard Fournette in a great matchup and with a solid workload and the, the sort of leverage play I whiffed, I missed last week. Um, Saquon Barkley is an elite talent at a price that's far cheaper than we're used to paying for him. Um, I think you could argue Josh. Jenkins I think that maybe. is a question though. That um and and you know let's just stop there for one quick second and talk about Saquon Barkley because I think you know in theory he for only a little bit more money he's not a leverage play but he is a low owned play in relation to some of these other guys that you mentioned so the big thing that I keep hearing as a negative about Barkley is that he just doesn't have the explosion anymore. Um, but I read something where he has as many uh, explosive running back plays as anyone in the league right now per get, you know, per touch. Um, but it, because that offensive line is bad, like we thought they would be, his, he gets hit behind the line a lot. What, what is your uh, thought on Barkley as it relates? Do you think, do you kind of fall into the, um, the path of him still having the lead upside? I think he does because we've seen it a couple times this year, right? We've seen the kind of like the big explosive plays we're used to seeing from Barkley. Uh, he had like a 54 yard receiving touchdown against the saints. He's had multiple, he's had a few like, you know, nice long runs, not quite as many as we're used to seeing, but he's also been kind of playing banged up for most of the year. Um, in the last couple of weeks, he's been on the field, the majority of the snaps, uh, the pass game work is really solid. Um, you know, he's got, he has, uh, let's see, what is it? He has four games this season out of, uh, it looks like, I'm trying to think of, he's played seven games, but he only really, he's only really played six, like when he left early. Um, so in, in four of those six, he has five, five or more targets. Um, the concern for Barkley is the overall offensive environment, right? Bad offensive line, go on the road against a good defense, underdog team. Um, now even, you know, a, a downgraded quarterback, quarterback to, you know, from, and the, the neck to neck downgrade from Daniel Jones neck injury opening up Mike Glennon and the largest neck in human history quarterbacking this week. You 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 took you took my neck above the field uh, instead of well. <laughs> leave leave the punts to me. I mean, you know, that's fair. That, yeah, that's I, fair. I don't it's know where I'm gonna fit in on this pod, but one thing I, I do recognize is that I should be taking the lead on the puns. That's fair. <laughs> So, yeah, I think and Barkley is, uh, you know, I mentioned him because I think if you're going to go away from ownership at running back, you need to make sure that you're going for a guy where if he hits his ceiling outcome, he can lap the field. Right. So, like, it doesn't make sense to me to play like a Miles Sanders and hope that his, 
you know, his ceiling might be 20 to 25 points um, because there are so many strong running back plays in the week that in all likelihood, we're going to see a, we're going to see several running backs put up that 20 to 25 point score. And so it doesn't make sense to take on additional risk by playing someone like a Sanders when your upside, your, your reward for that risk is only matching the field, right? Like you, I, I only, I only want to go off the board at running back where I feel the payoff for being right is being able to lap the field. And so that's someone like a Saquon Barkley, an Austin Eckler, um, a Joe, even a Joe Mixon, um, although he's going to be pretty owned, but like a guy who we know has like 30 plus point upside where he could be the highest scoring running back on the slate. And I think that Saquon, uh, and it's, it's tough to tell sometimes these guys where we haven't seen it in a while. Um, you know, if he just doesn't have it anymore. I think he, I think he still does. I mean, he has a game of 29.6 DraftKings points this year. And so I think that he still has that like 30 plus point ceiling where he could, you know, lap the field. Is it likely? No, it's not the best matchup for him. Right. But that's also why he's like 2% owned. Now that's kind of an MME play to me, like in your, in, in single entry in small field, I personally don't feel the need to go away from those core running backs because there are so many strong ones that in all likelihood you can find two or three out of that core uh, that are going to put up really strong games. I mean, unless we just have a weird yeah, week with I, all the I, I agree. I, I don't think we need to get too cute at running back. Um, there's, you know, this is something that we've talked about from a strategy perspective since the beginning of the year. You and Hilo talk about it all the time. Is, you know, and I think sometimes we end up as a, a site. Every site has their strengths and their weaknesses. I think mm-hmm. at times we we try and be, and I've talked to, I've talked to Hilo about this. We try to be so contrarian that we're being contrarian in ways that we don't need. We're taking on risk, to use your term that you used about Miles Sanders, that we don't need to be. I think in single entry, three entry, that list that you gave, is a really good list. And I, I think that, you know, your famous example of, you know, a stack, if you have a quarterback who's 15% owned, once you stack him with a guy, now you've got a stack that's about 5% owned, even if that running back is owned highly, that wide receiver, excuse me. Um, yeah. And then you add one more piece to that offense, and now you are down to like 2 to 3%. So uh, I'm just reiterating your key point here uh, for, our, you know, for our listeners. You know, I agree. Uh, the one guy, and you mentioned him, and he's in my single entry um, because I want to play Tom Brady this week. So Austin Eckler is in my single entry team, um, and I am bringing him back with a Bengal. I think that that game is going to get some ownership, more ownership at quarterback than it looks like it's – you know how you and you talk a lot about – um, the last couple of weeks about these um, quarterback, the, the, the players are owned, but the quarterbacks aren't. Yeah. What we're seeing with um, Joe Burrow and especially Herbert is more ownership on the quarterback this week, those quarterbacks this week, than we are on um, the players in that game. And I'm, I, you know, I want to talk about leverage at the end of the show, but my favorite leverage of the week right now is Austin Eckler. Yeah, I I think Eckler's an awesome play. I mean, he's he's one of those. We know he has the ceiling, right? You're not chasing a sort of hypothetical ceiling. Um, you know, he's had a game of 40 points. He's had two games this year of over 30 points. 
So, you know, the ceiling there is very real. He's comes in at very low ownership and it, that game is really attractive to me. And we're starting to see some ownership creep up on it. I think when I wrote my answers to the Oracle, the highest the there are only two plays currently projected for over 10% ownership and they were both barely over 10%. And now we're seeing like a little more a mix in. We're seeing Keenan Allen creep up. Um, but overall, that's the second highest total game of the week. And it's an easily stackable game between two relatively condensed offenses. So I think that game, like that's my favorite game of the week to stack um, because I think that the ownership just does not reflect the likelihood of, of really strong outcomes coming from that game. Yeah, and I love pairing Eckler with Jamar Chase. T. Higgins finally hit last week. Uh, Chase is still at 7,000. Um, uh, you know, again, um, I don't know that I would play that stack a ton with non-chalk quarterbacks, but for me with Tom Brady putting in Austin Eckler and Jamar Chase together, they're very dependent on each other. And that's the, that's why that's what I like with correlation plays X. I like guys who are um, you know, either they're gonna hit together or they're not. Because what good is it if one hits if the other doesn't? Um yeah. I, I feel like that is a really, really great way to differentiate Brady lineups this week. Yeah, I agree, because most Brady lineups are going to have Godwin, where it feels like the field is is extremely confident. And Hyler wrote about this. The field's expressing an extreme degree of confidence that the Bucks pass game production, eh, Bucks pass game production uh, is going to flow through Chris Godwin. So I, I really like that too. I don't know. I don't know if you have Godwin, or I mean, I think he's fine, right? He's a, I have he's Evans. A, he's an elite player, but I, Evans. I have Brady Evans with no bring back from Atlanta, and Eckler and Chase, and then I'm eating the chalk with Moreau to fit it in. Yep, I love it. I mean, I think that you know Evans is an incredibly sharp play this week. He and Godwin are pretty interchangeable, and yet he's Evans is coming in at half the ownership, and it's again like. This is not so much about like, you know, is Evans a better play than Godwin, but this is about how we think through these sort of strategy decisions of how to build rosters, right? And like Godwin's a fine play. He's a good play. He's an, he's an awesome receiver. Um, but if you're trying to differentiate from the most common way, like Brady's the highest owned running back on the slate. Godwin is the second or second or third highest owned uh, wide receiver on the slate. It's real. It's going to be really common to see them paired together again, which is okay if you can do it. You just have to make sure you differentiate elsewhere. But you can also differentiate just by playing. You can get half the ownership by playing Evans instead of Godwin, and they're they're pretty interchangeable receivers. And that's one of the key things that I think that I wanted to you know that I wanted to cover here is when you make lineups, who your quarterback is and who that key stack is you know, kind of count up that ownership in your head. Because again, we don't want to be overly, you know, we don't want, you know, a lineup that has 60% ownership, unless that's actually the best plays. Um, but so, you know, again, when it comes to uh, a quarterback who's going to have ownership, like Brady, definitely mix it up. Uh, another high priced quarterback this week, uh, who is not going to have hardly uh, well, let you know what. Let's finish off running back. So, I yep. wanted to make sure that we did something. I, I, I know you and everyone here, at JM. We really, you know, the key people here are all about getting better, constantly looking to get better. And it, it was painful last week and the week before to see Jonathan Taylor and Leonard Fournette go off, and to only have them basically in game stacks. 
So one of the things that I really wanted to do this week as we go through each position is look at the studs. You know, those guys who have 30 to 40 point upside um, but have really, really limited ownership. I've picked Eckler. But the other running back um, that is going to have literally no ownership, you can put, if you play him, you can mix in every stud, uh, every um, high-owned play that you want. Najee Harris at 2.5% ownership. Um, the key thing to understand here is they wouldn't be that low-owned if they were in a good matchup, right? Or if everything was ideal. If, they, if everything was ideal, you wouldn't get them there. But tell me your thoughts on Najee as, you know, what do you think his chances are of getting to a 30, 40-point game? Yeah, the reason that guys get low owned, I mean, like, you, you can always poke holes, right? And it's like, oh, well, Najee, oh, it's a long matchup against Baltimore. They're really good run defense. Like, cool. They are. Um, bad matchups don't lower a guy's ceiling. Bad matchups lower a guy's odds of hitting their ceiling, right? And so pursuing and using players in tough matchups at very low ownership is a really common strategy of successful DFS tournament players because you can get guys who still have that slate-breaking like 30-plus point ceiling um, at almost no ownership because people are scared of the matchup. And, you know, so you could argue, well, it is a tough matchup. His chances of hitting, this, of hitting his ceiling are lower okay, true, right? They true. Um, but I currently have Najee Harris projected for 1.4% ownership. So the question you have to ask yourself is like, he's priced right around Alexander Madison, right? They're $100 apart. Madison's got 20% ownership. So the question is, is Madison really 15x? You know, is he a 15 to 1 favorite to outscore Harris? Um, I would argue, no, he's not, right? I would argue that he's he's a favorite to outscore Harris, but not 15 to 1. The question I have with Harris is is the ceiling and like it he's a tough one to for me to evaluate because it feels like he's all he's been so close to a big ceiling performance on multiple occasions this season but he's never quite gotten there he has one game of 31.2 points and that's a game where he got 19 targets um which obviously is ridiculous um and and unlikely to be repeated but he also has like he has a game of 25 points, a game of 24.7 points, a game of, you know, multiple other games of 20 or right around 20, which isn't quite good enough at 7,700. But, you know, when you take those games where they're like right around, you know, where they need one more thing to go their way. And it always feels like he's either like he's either like getting a bunch of pass game work or he's hitting the rushing bonus or he's scoring a touchdown. But it's never like coming all together in the same game for him. And that's what's held him from like hitting a big ceiling, right? He's had like, you know, week five against Denver, 122 rushing yards and a touchdown, but he only had two catches that week. And then, you know, the week against Cincinnati where he had 19 targets, he had 102 receiving yards, but he didn't get in the end zone. And there's a game of 24.7 points where he scored a receiving touchdown, but he didn't hit the rushing bonus. And so like, it's always like, it's never, it's never all come together for Harris. Um, and, and my perspective is, that for a good player who has a really solid workload like Harris does, at some point it is likely to come together for him. So, you know, I don't love him as a play because I do think that there are, like, there are just so many strong running backs on the slate. 
But I am doing MME this week because Yahoo continues to just throw away free money at DFS players, which is awesome. Um, and so if Harris is going to be one or two percent owned, like this, he's not a single entry or three max play for me. But he's someone who in my MME roster is like, I want to be overweight the field at one or two percent. I can have six percent and have three X the field. And that's a fairly modest allocation of my tournament entry exposure. Um, but I get access to a player. I mean, he has one of the most elite running back roles in the NFL. He's one of the few real three down running backs that's left. And like, that's a play that I, I tend to always want exposure to those three down running backs because there just aren't that many of them. Yeah, so you basically said everything that I was going to say, so I won't uh, reiterate it too much. Not a single entry guy, not a three entry guy for me. But if you're going to play 100 lineups, which is the exact number I'm going to play this week uh, on DraftKings, it only makes sense not to make the same mistake and at least make sure that you, you know, if you have them, it's not just in game stacks. And since I won't be playing quarterbacks from that game, um, although I guess I could be convinced to to put, play a little bit of Lamar, um, still find uh, kind of working on that at the end. And we'll get the quarterback in a little bit here. Um, but um, Eckler to me at six percent gives you a lot more likely chance of hitting a ceiling because, um, as was very well laid out in the um, NFL Edge, um, you know the team he's playing against it's a it's a pretty good matchup for him he's lower owned more out of um i think the fact that people just aren't looking at that game and there's so many good options lower and if you're gonna play someone in that range you're probably gonna play madison um so yeah, he's the, i i he's the i over Najee, uh but i do think if you're gonna play a lot of lineups those are guys who, you know, we, you know, we always say on Twitter, you know, uh, who is the guy who's going to do it this week? I, you know, at the running back position X, those are the two guys that I see that have a chance to really turn the slate on their head. And as you mentioned, you don't have to bet that much on them. Yeah. I also love Eckler because like I said, that's my favorite game to target because I think that's, you know, that, that, that game is where the sweet spot of ownership and likelihood of success, like are at the bet are at their their peak this week um so Eckler is like one of my overall favorite plays and you're right that the you know the since the Bengals defense filters targets to running backs Eckler's an elite pass catcher uh the Bengals are the defense that we saw Michael Carter go berserk uh against in the run game we've seen running backs uh have success in the passing game against them all season long so I am I am all on board the Eckler train choo choo so um if, uh, breaking from format just a bit uh, that makes me have a question for you um, because the way I'm kind of attacking that game is I, I really want to raise, uh, I, I want them in a lot of non-quarterback line, non-game stacks. There you go. Um, are you planning on playing the quarterbacks in that game and how, um, because they do seem to have ownership. Uh, let's bounce over to that a little bit. Yeah, I don't see a ton of ownership on them. Actually, no, you know what? I'm sorry. I, 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 take I, I see it on Herbert. I got I an take back. on Herbert of uh, yeah, 11%. I, I will say this. Though. And six on, on, on uh, Burrow from, I will from say three this sites. I don't worry a lot about quarterback ownership broadly because quarterbacks just don't reach the same levels of ownership that um, that skill position players do. 
right? The highest projected quarterback on the slate is Tom Brady at about 16, 17%, which is actually really high for a quarterback. But then we have like the highest projected player that I have right now is Antonio Gibson and Jamal Williams, both about 30%. So quarterback ownership generally doesn't move the needle for me, um, especially when I can play when I can play them and with their receivers are generally low owned. Like Brady plus Godwin um, is a is a pretty high owned beginning to a roster. And that doesn't mean you can't do it. And I will have those rosters. Um, <clears throat> but on those rosters, you want to make sure you're being you're being different in other ways. But like Herbert's 12 percent, he's going to be owned. Um, but like, then if you go look at, you know, you got Eckler at 6%, you've got Keenan Allen at 10%, Mike Williams at 7%. So like when you start pairing Herbert with his, with his skill position players, the ownership kind of, the, the, the combinatorial ownership goes down. And especially if you double stack him, it's going to go down even more because you can kind of just sort of infer this from looking at the overall ownership where if you see Herbert at 12% and all three of his primary skill position players are lower than 12%, what we can infer from that is the majority of the field that's going to play Herbert is likely to single stack him um, because the ownership just, is just, there's not enough ownership on the Chargers guys. Either that or the ownership projections are wrong, which is possible. Um, but if we're, if we're believing the ownership projections, then what that's telling us is most people are going to be single stacking Herbert. I wouldn't even mind bringing two Bengals back in a percentage of those lineups. Not at all. I'd be happy to do that. Um, no. Over, it's the best game environment of the slate, in my opinion. Um, you know, it's because the game to is the second highest total, but it's also one of the only high total games that has a close spread in between, and it has two condensed offenses, which is just as important as how many points they're going to score. Is can we predict where those points are going from a fantasy perspective? So that, that's very helpful. So before we jump off of running back, um, there's two there's two things and they're completely different, but I'll just throw them both out. You can and you can hit them. The yeah. first one is uh, and I think Jan mentioned it in his uh, write up of the game. And it's why he's the one that I'm limiting ownership on in the optimizer. I, I think Jamal Williams has out of those guys has the hot, the hardest chance of hitting a true ceiling game a game that you have to have. Um, would you agree with that? And my second question is, with Daryl Henderson possibly being out, and you've talked a lot about late swap this year, how interested would you be in Sony Michelle in that circumstance? Yeah. So, yeah, I would agree. Like, Jamal Williams is a – I view him as a, like, rock-solid floor but moderate sort of questionable ceiling kind of play. Um, at 5,400 on DraftKings, his floor is awesome, right? He should get 60 to 80 rushing yards and four to six catches. Um, that's probably a pretty, that's a pretty fair outcome for him. Uh, the challenge when you have, when you're playing running or any players, when you're playing players from bad offenses, the challenge is just the risk of overall offensive failure, Like cool if jamal williams gets that that's great but what if the lines don't score a touchdown which is a viable outcome here or if they only score one touchdown right like what are, what's the likelihood of a ceiling game where jamal williams scores two touchdowns first the lions have to actually score two touchdowns which, which they've been struggling to do and second they both have to go to williams so he's he's a great floor play um his ceiling is is a little tough to envision um <clears throat> Can I, so I, can like I just jump in for a second there? Yeah, absolutely. So 
all right, let's take that knowledge and put it into practical use. Um, how I was talking about how you separate a Brady lineup. So I would much more likely be interested in Jamal Williams in lineups where um, you don't have as much floor, right? So, you know, like we figure Brady is, and and a lot of his guys are going to have a good, you know, really good ceilings. But, um, you know, maybe in a Russell Wilson stack, Jamal Williams Mm -hmm. makes more sense. Because um, you can, you know, if 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 that stack goes off, having that rock solid floor, it could be very very helpful, and you don't need to reach as much for a ceiling. Yeah, like if you get a forty point game from Tyler Lockett at you know five percent ownership, and you get a thirty point game from Russell Wilson at two percent ownership, um, and they're the they're, you know, that's the highest scoring quarterback wide receiver combo on the slate you don't necessarily need in that roster, you don't necessarily need the absolute ceiling outcomes at every other position because you've sort of already captured some really low owned ceiling. And now what you need is you need no one else on your roster to fail, right? Like, um, is, you know, just get me close to the, just get me close to the top. Yeah, it's like so. Last week's Millie Maker roster, um, last week's Millie Maker winner had Robbie Anderson on it of all people, right? I think he scored like two points. So this is kind of a bad example, but like the point here is, you don't need to hit a perfect roster to win. Um, what you generally need is you need a few ceiling outcomes. If there are any like had to have it scores, like Leonard Fournette last week, then yes, you have to have that guy. Um, and then you generally need you need a roster without any landmines and like, you know, Robbie Anderson was obviously a landmine for that guy last week, but he had basically perfection outside of Robbie Anderson. Um, But I would say on that roster, because of how low owned everything else that guy did was Robbie Anderson was like a terrible play and it worked out for the guy and like awesome for him. Um, But Robbie Anderson is not the right play for that roster because that roster is already filled with a ton of risk, right? On every roster, you want to think about floor and ceiling because you need both. Um, and so, yeah, to your mixing your, what, that mixed drink, your, your point on it is the way you phrase it, I think, is really sharp, right? Like you don't I think Jamal Williams does fit better on a roster with something like a Russell Wilson than than on a Tom Brady roster. Um, so I agree with that. Yeah. And it's not like he doesn't have a ceiling. It's just a less likely to hit ceiling. But, you know, he's more likely to get you to 20, which would be enough with that Russ and. Um, Metcalf or Lockett lineup to uh, get you into a nice sweat. Um, yeah. All right, now uh, let's hit Sony Michelle and then we'll move over to quarterback. Yeah, Sony Michelle is like, so here's the thing with Daryl Henderson in the Rams run game. Daryl Henderson uh, doesn't have a ceiling because the Rams refuse to just give him a lot of work, right? The Rams can have been have been capping his touches. Uh, around the you know 16 to 18 or so range in the majority of games, um, and because of that, like, and because their their tendency to pass a lot in the red zone, um, he de- he hasn't hit the rushing bonus once this season. He's hit 20 carries once this season. Otherwise, his high is 17. Um, he's averaging about four targets a game. So like he's another play where like the floor is is pretty solid, although I'd, ar- I'd argue Jamal Williams' floor is better. Um, but his ceiling is somewhat questionable. And, and we've Hilo and I have talked about this on the show before um, about Henderson. 
However, Sony Michelle, there, I think there's I think there's a couple of differences with Michelle. One, Michelle isn't their lead guy, and you know they're trying to I think clearly uh, limit Henderson's workload to preserve him for the long season in the playoffs. And Michelle, they don't need to think about that as much with, like, I think they, they might be okay running Michelle onto the ground. They might be okay just not capping his workload and letting him just run. And I don't know if that's true, right? But it's certainly, uh, his his ceiling on touches is unknown, whereas with Henderson's, it's known. Um, and the second part is Michelle's 4,300, whereas Henderson is 6,100. So, and the third part is... Uh, is that he's likely to be lower owned, assuming we don't get word until after the early games lock, right? So we've talked about this kind of swap strategy before, where you know if if a guy uh, doesn't get if a guy doesn't become, clearly become a play until after the early games lock, his ownership is going to be lower than if we knew that Sony Michelle was the lead back at this very moment. Sony Michelle would probably be the highest owned player on the slate, um, but we don't know, so its ownership is going to be muted. And so that late swap flexibility plus the extreme value he provides. Um, I mean, what is like running back is the, the he's barely above the minimum. The minimum price for running back is, is 4,000 now and he's 4,300. So I would be all over Michelle if, uh, if Henderson is out. I, I would try to get him on like as many will, rosters. Will, will you take that into consideration as you're building and leaving yourself more outs to get to him? Yeah, sort of, yeah, because I think, so I already plan to have a lot of exposure to Washington, Las Vegas. Um, I already plan to have a lot of expo exposure to the Rams, and I plan to have a lot of exposure to San Francisco, Seattle. So because of that, like, I'm not going to make sure I have an open running back spot on every roster, necessarily, but because of my heavy exposure to those three environments, uh, I'm, I'm going to have, I, I will inevitably have a lot of flexibility to swap to Sonny Michelle. If I if he become, if he becomes available, I could swap down from Elijah Mitchell. I could swap down from uh, Antonio Gibson, or I could swap down in the flex from a receiver, um, and and you know and then pay up somewhere else. Like like what I would anticipate is if that plays out uh, and we get Michelle as an option, that will increase my exposure to Cooper Cup, to to, to Deontay Johnson, um, to maybe a little bit of Terry McLaurin, who I'm not super into this week, um, a little bit. I heard a few Kittle. people talking about him glowingly, and I'm a huge Terry McLaurin fan, but I'm not feeling it this week either. I love Terry McLaurin as a player, um, but the problem is, is that we've just seen the Raiders all year have limited wide opposing wide receiver production. That's that's the way their defense is. And, and you've got a quarterback who struggles to get him the ball on a good matchup. Yeah, and he struggles to get it downfield. Yeah, so that you know, exactly. so he's reliant more on um, on yak, which is very hard to predict than he is and on, not really on his games bombs. yeah like he's not he's not he's not debo samuel right he's not like the yak master right. he's gonna he's he's gonna catch he needs to get there by catching either a bunch of passes or or some deep ones and and you know heineke is not a, a deep threat attacker there is a guy in that game i'm interested in we'll get to that in a minute um i did say we were going to go to quarterback but i think we covered a, a little bit of that already and we will get into it but i I want to take a step back out and take kind of the thousand foot feet view um, now that we've gone over the running back position, because obviously the chalk build is going to have two and maybe three mid-priced running backs. Um, a, 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 you know, not going with the chalk build is something that we've done a lot of. 
But I also don't know that it's necessary each week to be different in that way if you have enough other ways to differentiate your lineups. Um, would you agree with my point on the chalk build? And would you also agree that with so many good values in this range, I would rather differentiate in other ways um, than, than really stressing myself about having a different build this week? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, right, like Hilo, Hilo talks a lot about differentiation through salary allocation in your roster construction. Um, and, and that's one way to differentiate. Like at the end of the day, what we know is if we want to win tournaments, we need to build rosters filled with good plays, um, but we need to find ways to do so that are somewhat different than what the field is doing. And so we need to find a way to differentiate. And so, you know, one one way to differentiate is looking differentiate is looking at where the field's spending its salary in terms of like 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 to your point, it does look like most of the field is going to have uh, two mid-priced running backs or one mid-priced and then one kind of you know higher higher mid to to high priced, right? Jonathan Taylor. Um, you don't have to constrain yourself by saying, I will lock myself into two expensive running backs as like, that is one way to differentiate a roster. Um, but that's only one way out of a bunch of different ways, right? You can differentiate, differentiate a roster through individual plays. You can differentiate through your salary allocation. You can differentiate it by, you know, what you're playing in the flex versus what the field is. Like there's a lot of different ways to differentiate, differentiate a roster smartly. And, you know, the, the construction and salary allocation angle is, is one path, but it's not the only one. So that, that is a perfect lead into the quarterback. So let's look at the quarterbacks through that lens. Right. Let's start with Tom Brady um, and his, you know, obviously Chris Godwin's going to be owned. Gronk's going to be owned. A lot of people are going to be playing Brady with two um, and bringing back one. But I think you're also going to see a lot of one and one and a decent amount of Brady um, with just one receiver. Um what is, what are other ways? I discussed one way, which was uh, using Eckler and uh, Jamar Chase or T. Higgins. Uh, what are some other ways that you would differentiate some Brady lineups? Yeah. Well, so first, like, let me let me back up from just Brady here and note that on this slate there are several elite offenses um, <clears throat> in games that are projected to be lopsided, and I wrote about this in the Oracle. Where I think that by this point in sort of in the sort of the evolution of DFS, uh, we've gotten to a place where most people feel that the correct strategy is you take your quarterback, you stack them with at least one pass catcher, and you bring back someone from the other side, and and overall that is a good strategy, right? Like um, it's a strategy to try, try and minimize uh, you know the number of things you need to get right, um, which is what which is what stacking and correlation are all about. But uh, what that causes is I think when players follow that rule blindly, um, as can be the problem when people follow any sort of rule blindly without thinking it through deeply, is that <clears throat> that can cause people to either shy away from great game environments, like for example, shying away from the Rams who are projected to score like almost 30 points because, well, what jag do I bring it back with? And the question is, do, why do you need to bring it back with a Jaguar? Like the Rams are gonna score 30 points, that's four touchdowns all you need to do is get those touchdowns right. Um, and, you know, we actually have years of data that show that 
even in a lopsided game, that doesn't negatively impact fantasy production from the winning team. Um, people fear like the, oh, well, if they win in a blowout, they'll pull their starters. Their guys won't, you know, they like they they won't get they won't keep passing deep into the game. It may be true, but if they score four touchdowns, like that's all you need or five touchdowns. Um, it's pretty rare for NFL teams to actually pull their starters until very late in the game. And it has to be a very lopsided game. And so like we have years of data saying that, like, you can get fancy production in a blowout, but people fear it. People people shy away from it, or they say, "Well, like I need I need a bring back," and so who do I bring it back with? And they either either don't do a bring back, <clears throat> or they bring it back with someone who is frankly suboptimal. Like they'll bring you know they'll why why bring back a jag? I mean you can't against against the Rams defense. I feel like that's a, actually a you can I suppose, um, and it's not like you can't have a good game, but I feel like that's a negative EV play in the long run. And so, like, and Brady falls into this against Atlanta. I do think that people, Atlanta, at least there's a couple of, like, sort of marquee name brand players. People know who they are, and they've had some good games this year. So they feel okay playing them. Um, and what's the other team that's going to win in a blowout? Uh, sorry. Um, Colts. Duh. Uh, you will, so I think you'll see people shy away from stacking Colts. Um, because, and I think the Colts pass game is obviously, you know, that they're a run-heavy team. Um, they're, but, they're tough to stack on a good week. <laughs> Yeah, um, but you could play, I mean, you could play Carson Wentz and Michael Pittman and don't need a bring back. And I think that people's attachment to this concept of bring backs, people get these sort of rules fixate, they fixate on them and they think that, you know, much like, like they say in Pirates of the Caribbean, right? They're more like guidelines. You don't have to blindly apply them to every possible spot. Um, <clears throat> so I think- Well, also like they say in the Pirates of the Caribbean, Sorry, you I out. digressed. You you cut out for a second. Oh, I um, said just like they said in the Pirates of the Caribbean, are yes. <laughs> What's a pirate's so, favorite letter? Um, I, I think that's a very good point. Um, and as it relates to this week, you know, the other point I'll add on to what you just said is the reason that stacking with one or two guys and bringing someone back works so well is because a lot of the field wasn't doing it. Mm-hmm. Now that the field has adjusted, it's it's kind of, you know, that's the thing that I've been thinking a lot about the last couple of weeks. It's very freeing, right, to 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 not have to feel like you have to do that. Uh, and, and your point about Wentz and Pittman, like I wouldn't start a lineup with Wentz and Pittman. But if I built a lineup that I loved and the and, and I just wanted a quarterback and I used to do this with single entry all the time and I did very well with it. I would build my best floor ceiling combo at every position except for one wide receiver spot and the quarterback. And then I would look for a low owned quarterback wide receiver and I just plug them in. Um, and, and that, that works. So uh, I think the field getting smarter changes what we need to do to be smart. Absolutely. Right. Like the field it's, it's uh, you know, in poker, they talk about game theory optimal, right. And game theory optimal does not say in this situation, you must always make this play. 
right? What game theory optimal says is in this in this kind of situation, you should be making this kind of play this percent of the time, and this kind of play that percent of the time. Um, and and that's kind of how DFS is, right? Like the field is getting sharper over time and adopting, and the strategy of the game evolves over time. And so our strategies need to evolve over time. And so years ago, we learned you must stack your quarterback. Aha, cool. And then a little bit after that, it was you stack your quarterback and you bring someone back from the opposing team. And aha, cool. And we sort of latch onto these things. And and the thing is, most people will stick with those rules longer than they are necessarily viable um, because that's what they've been trained to do. And it sort of takes the field a while to evolve into sort of the next level um, and then also uh, adjust their their play accordingly, right? Because you don't want to adjust, you don't want to be too early to adjust your play because like that's kind of scary, right? Why would I why would I adjust my play and and away from this rule that has been working and that everyone says I should do, right? It's scary to be sort of the first one to break that rule, um, <clears throat> but I think it's entirely viable. And you know, as as everyone stacks and everyone uses bringbacks. That means from a ownership perspective, from a leverage perspective, there's now upside in doing the in doing the opposite, right? Like um, as long as it makes sense for that lineup within the caveat yeah. of as long as it makes sense with that lineup. Yeah, agreed. And so like I think you can st- I think you can run Bucks um, Bucks without a bring back. I think you can run Colts without a bring back. I think you can run Rams without a bring back. The Rams are the one that really kind of stand out to me because like there is like Matthew Stafford is is projecting at five percent ownership and he has the fourth highest. I'm seeing ten in a couple other spots. Yeah, it could be. I'm looking at one source right now because I haven't I haven't done the like. I, I got I got aggregate. the combination of three right now and his average is about nine point one. Okay. Um, yeah, but okay, that's that higher was than my I was next question. So, uh, I'm I'm going to be overweight on Brady. I don't know where you'll be. You can answer that. But right now, I'm 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 going two x on Stafford. But he doesn't have a great crush percentage um, in the blitz, which is the chance that he's going to get three x plus seven. Um, so are, are, are you looking at playing that game mostly with the pieces or do you plan on being even or over on Stafford? No, I want some onslaughts. I mean, like Stafford has one, two, three, four, five, like five games of 27 or more points this year um, in 11 starts. And, you know, you need a little bit more than that for three X plus seven, but like, 27 points on a slate where we don't have uh, that many elite quarterbacks. Uh, P.S. Jalen Hurts is now ruled out. Um, you know, this is not a slate full of elite quarterbacks. So there's not a lot of guys who have that 30, 35 point upside. Um, and so if you can get a 27, 28, like that could be it. That could be enough. Um, so I like Stafford. I like Brady. Uh, and then again, I like I like Herbert and Burrow. That's the game I'm all over. And then I we I guess now, I guess now I have to talk about Gardner Minshew again because I thought I was done with that point in my life. Um, but Gardner Minshew well, is now starting before, quarterback. Before 4, we 000. torture ourselves with that, and I and I just say no. You know I'm going to go all Nancy <laughs> Reagan on that one. But um, I um, I do want to ask you about Lamar Jackson. Even though he's not in quote a great game environment, he rates well himself. But he, you know, like you get with a lot of the studs, he's still showing nine to ten percent ownership. 
Yeah, so Lamar, I think, and it's probably going to go up because of Hertz being out, right? Hertz was priced, uh, was one of the other really expensive quarterbacks, and so Hertz being out probably bumps up the other really expensive quarterbacks a little bit. I mean, Lamar has the highest raw projection of a quarterback on the slate because of his rushing upside, and we have a, and again, it's a, it's a sort of quarterback light slate. We don't have. Um, we're missing, you know, Josh Allen, we're missing Patrick Mahomes, we're missing Dak, uh, we're now missing Hertz, right? We're missing a lot of top quarterbacks. And so, you know, Lamar is, the matchup isn't great, but Lamar is uh, somewhat matchup proof. And I mean, he's put up huge numbers against some good defenses in his career and this season. Um, and the thing with Lamar for me is I, he's a quarterback I would not play without a bring back. Because uh, the Baltimore Ravens are one of the sort of more game flow sensitive teams in how they call their plays. And if they're up, if they're up and up significantly, they are one of the teams that's kind of happy to sort of take their foot off the gas a little bit and play much more conservatively. They're also one of the teams that's quicker to pull their starters than most other NFL teams are. Um, and I think part of that's with Lamar because he runs so much, like he's taking more physical abuse than most quarterbacks. And so when they can get, when they can give him a rest, they're, they're happy to. Um, so I wouldn't play Lamar naked. I'd want to have a Steeler coming back because for Lamar to really hit his ceiling, uh, he needs the other team pushing him to it. But if he does hit his ceiling, his ceiling is unparalleled on this slate, right? He has two games over 35 points and a game over 45 points, which is just insane these days. You don't see quarterbacks get over 40 very often anymore in the NFL. Um, and, you know. Yeah. And, and, and his weapons are not going to be highly owned. And I saw no. you talked about Najee and how he hasn't been all uh, able to put it all together. Um, Lamar, that I think that's a really interesting one with Najee as a bring back. You can also, you, you know, Deontay's going to be the most popular one. Um, yeah. Claypool, I think, is what a lot of people are going to use as the number two. Um, but if you get the Najee ceiling game, and uh, I saw a stat that Lamar only has two rushing touchdowns this year. Yeah. So, you know, there, there is room for him, even in not the perfect game environment, to have a very uh, a slate-breaking score. Yeah. Yeah, so here's a trivia question for you. Of all the quarterbacks on the slate besides Lamar, how many 40-point games have they, have they had this season? All of them combined. Um, I would say, I think Brady had one. Correct. Um... I think, oh man, did Taylor Heineke have one? Oh God, now I have to go check. I didn't even look at him. I, <laughs> 40 I, points I don't for Taylor so, Heineke, what a world. I don't think Stafford did. Did not. Um, and I think Justin Herbert maybe once. Yeah, Justin Herbert in that shootout against Cleveland. So basically, yep. two games, all the quarterbacks on the slate combined, two games over 40 points. And that's I the can't believe I got that right. Yeah, that was good. Um, that's Lamar's ceiling. So the odds are he doesn't hit it, right? But he's he's the only quarterback on the slate who really has access to that kind of ceiling. Um, and, you know, and it's the only quarterback on the slate who has regular access to 35-plus point games, right? Like Brady has one game over 40, but he doesn't have any other games over 35 outside of that one. Herbert, does not, Herbert has one other game over 35. So, like, Lamar is, an, is a, I think, a great tournament play. Um, his ownership is pretty high and which I think is fair. I think you can play him naked. Um, but like Marquise Brown, uh, 
what's his name? Uh, Mark Andrews, Rashad Bateman. They're all coming in pretty low. So I think you can absolutely play Lamar. But again, I, I wouldn't, I personally would not do it without a Steeler coming back. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's a great call. And um, I'm going to ask you about one last game environment and your interest in the quarterbacks in it. Derek Carr and Taylor Heineke. Yeah, that's another one. It's the third highest total game on the slate, um, unless the totals have changed since I looked last night. Um, but the highest it's, total game Yeah, is... no, that one's just under 50 last time I looked. Yeah, highest total is Bucks and Atlanta. Second is uh, Bengals and Chargers. And then third is Las Vegas and Washington. Um, <clears throat> I like Derek Carr significantly more than I like Taylor Heineke. Um, I think that, you know, that's that's a game where the ownership on the players is more i think accurate in terms of like what in terms of it, it more accurately reflects the likelihood of ceiling performances where we have antonio gibson we even have josh jacobs over 10 percent, which i think is terrible um we have hunter renfro highly owned we have foster moreau of course is like one of the highest owned plays in the slate um so there's some ownership on this game um but it is a good game environment right like i think I think you can play Terry McLaurin. I mean, just if you're and just if you're looking at like who has a high ceiling, who is not going to be owned. Terry McLaurin is someone who belongs on that list. Um, I think you can play Deshaun Jackson, assuming he's healthy. I think you can if you're if you're feeling really frisky, you can take shots at Brian Edwards or Zay Jones. Personally, I wouldn't do that unless Deshaun Jackson misses the game. But I think you can take shots at them. Um, I think you can take shots at Logan Thomas. So like, there are plays in this game. There are good plays in this game that are highly owned, like Gibson, um, and arguably Moreau. And then there are plays in this game that are much less owned. And this is usually the case in these highly owned games, is the high ownership tends to congregate on on just a few plays. And it tends to leave some plays significantly overlooked, even though the game itself is attracting a lot of ownership. Um, and so that's kind of the way that I tend to approach those game, those game environments, is I like all want to target like Derek Carr, Antonio Gibson, but then instead of playing Hunter Renfro and or Foster Moreau, as ownership says, most of the field will be doing in a game stack like that, I would rather play like Deshaun Jackson. Um, and that's my way to kind of differentiate, like starting off with a game stack of Derek Carr, who's going to be pretty highly owned, Antonio Sinu is going to be one of the highest owned players on the slate. Um, but then I avoid Renfro and, and Moreau, or I play one of them. Uh, and not both, and then play Deshaun Jackson at 2% ownership, right? And like that's my way to differentiate that game. So I like that game environment. I like Chargers-Bengals more because those offenses are more concentrated. Um, the, the totals are similar, but the offenses are, are, more, are tighter. So I feel like I have a higher degree of confidence in knowing where the ball is going. And the Raiders' ability to shut down opposing pass game production uh, just is something that I tend to shy away from targeting heavily on a full slate. It just I tend to, I just tend to feel like people underrate the Raiders defense. And we've had this conversation here before a couple weeks ago when they were playing the Bengals and the Bengals wide receivers were super chalky. Uh, and then we in Highway I talked about how, you know, that was probably bad chalk. And then sure enough, they all flopped and, and Joe Mixon went nuts um, because the Bengals, the Raiders are actually pretty hard to pass against. Their defense is just schemed such to limit wide receiver production. That was that was very very helpful. That's going to help my process and where I want to put my uh, quarterback money and where I might not. Um, and that leads us kind of to uh, the chalkiest player on the slate. Uh, you mentioned him, Foster Moreau. Um, yeah. And you know, um, 
Someone in chat, let me give credit where credit due. Ship it 33 said, is Logan Thomas the best leverage play in Washington, Las Vegas, off of Gibson Foster? I don't think that you want to get off of Gibson and play Thomas necessarily, but I would have no problem playing them both together. And Thomas is my favorite uh, non-Moreau uh, tight end on the slate. Yeah, the one thing we love about the uh, Washington football team is how have they not gotten a new name? It's been like over a year. Um, let me go look. I'm, well, I want to see. Every time I see it, it looks like it's saying WF, uh, WTF, not WFT. I know. I read so it. Every time every I see time. it, it's like, what the, you know. Um, I read it as that every time. So, LT3, like, one of the cool things about Washington football team is they play one tight end 100% of the snaps. Like, it's nuts. Um, first three weeks of the season, Logan Thomas, 100% of the snaps. Then week four through week eight, Ricky Seals-Jones, 93% through to 100% of the snaps. Then Ricky Seals-Jones gets hurt in week 10. Week 11, John Bates, 99% of the snaps. So, like, they just play one tight end. And tight end is one way to attack the Raiders' defense. Logan Thomas came back last week. He was expected to be on somewhat of a snap count. He played 79% of the snaps. So, like, Logan Thomas on a snap count basically played more snaps than the vast majority of of, of tight end ones in the league on a snap count. So I'd expect him to go back to his normal, you know, near 100% role. So I love Logan Thomas. And I love Deshaun Jackson as the other leverage play, right, where... You know, the in, getting away from the sort of Foster Moreau, uh, Hunter Renfro, kind of low upside, short area pass game work and towards DJX, who, you know, we played in showdown. I wrote my showdown lineup for the last uh, Raiders game because clearly the Raiders feel like Brian Edwards and Zay Jones are not doing it for them as perimeter receivers and brought in DJX. And immediately he caught like a 56 yard touchdown, like the first drive, um, nearly caught a second one of. Yeah, I mean, like, as long as he's healthy, right? It's like when he's on the field, he is dangerous. I mean, I don't, he's like 80 years old now, like, but he's, I mean, he's still he's, awesome. Um, he, and he's, and he's, he's one of those guys that's just fun to own a little bit of. But um, uh, I, I do want to kind of sum up that Washington-LA game, uh, LA, LV game. Yep. And I'm going to sum it up by saying it's not a bad game environment, but Something I've talked to Hilo a lot about is his predication for, you know, loving um, low-owned bad teams, right? Not that they're bad. Oh man, he and I do that. Yeah, but the you know, it's so it's going to be so easy in trying to build Las Vegas teams because of the ownership on the key parts. It's going to be so tempting to to own players who are legitimately bad NFL players. Um, I will go where, on the record it, here and say that Hunter Renfro is awful chalk this week. Yeah, and 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 that's why I feel like I agree with you that the the Charger game is a much better place to attack. That doesn't mean that it won't the the right answer on Monday won't have been the Washington game. But I feel like I can make better lineups with less chance of less fragile lineups with less ownership. Um, by b- being under on that game and just picking parts of it for the li- you know for the lineups that can handle some chalk. So you know, again, I said I was using Foster Moreau in my Brady uh, single entry. 
But it wasn't because I love Moreau. It was because of everything that having Moreau allowed me to do and I had enough differentiation. So that's the key point that I want to get across. And, you know, you and I are on Sunday. We're, we're in the, the, the chat and, you know, we he, and, and a lot of guys will mention their lineups. And that's one key point I want to get across is, you know, there's nothing wrong with Moreau chalk as long as it's in the right lineup and you know why you're doing it. Uh, but overall, that game environment is, even though it's a, a high total, is of less interest to me um, because it is going to be so owned. Yeah, outside of Gibson, I'm pretty much the same way. Like, Yeah, I love, yeah, Chalk's Gibson's like- independent. He's a floater. Uh, I don't need a bring back on Gibson. Um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, like it's, what was I going to say? I forgot. I lost my train of thought because I also saw some news. Um, apparently, Jalen Hurts has not been ruled out per Adam Schefter. Uh, they are they are uh, nervous about him playing. They want to see how he feels. It looks like he's going to be. It looks like it's going to be a, a game time decision for Jalen Hurts. So we don't have to talk about Gardner Minshew. Few. Um, Good. Yeah, because Gardner Minshew throwing to Tark now. Gardner Minshew would make me more interested in Dallas Goddard, but that's about it. Uh, I think you'd have more, just overall more pass game equity uh, without Jalen Hurts at quarterback, right? That their, their game plan would be a little more pass heavy. Correct. And and Goddard, Goddard, you know, I love whether it's best ball or DFS. I love betting on guys who have the talent to crush, and and Dallas Goddard does. So yeah. Minshew in my interest in Goddard goes up. Um, I'm also interested in tight end at uh, with George Kittle. Um, you know, you have to fight your biases, guys. You know, I just saw someone post about Najee in the chat. You know, we covered why Najee is 2%, right? If he was, if it was, if everything was lined up perfectly, his salary, and he had hit his ceiling twice, he would be $9,000 based on his, you know, his uh, usage. Um, the reason he's 3% is because there are issues. George Kittle, last week, keep this in mind, and I talked to Hilo about this. Debo went down mid-game, and George Kittle only got two targets. That doesn't mean that George Kittle is only going to get two targets this week because now they have a chance to plan for trying to get a win without Debo. Uh, Does that make sense to you, um, X? Yeah, Debo also wasn't hogging the pass game usage the last couple games, right? Like, Kittle is a highly volatile tight end because in addition to being an elite receiver, he's also the best blocking tight end in the NFL. Um, And 49ers like to run the ball. So, you know, surprising no one. Um, But the Seahawks are a pass funnel defense. And while the 49ers uh, are pretty committed to their run game, they are also, generally speaking, fairly wisely coached, and their coaching staff is generally not the type of coaching staff that's going to, this is not like, what's his name, Nagy, um, or, uh, oh my god, Adam Adam Gase, who just, you know, stick to their same plan, come hell or high water no matter what, um, <clears throat> and bang their heads into a wall. More Frank Gore, please. Yeah, like, they're not just going to bang their heads into a wall, and so, you know, they'll They'll run the ball, obviously. They're not going to have a you know 100% pass play rate. But it sure makes a lot of sense this week for the 49ers' pass play rate to be a little higher than, it, than we've seen it the rest of the season. Um, and if they pass more than normal, well, they're down from three good receivers to two. And then the guys behind them are kind of a pile of nobodies, to be honest. 
behind Kittle and Ayuk. So, you know, and Kittle, it's not about how can Kittle fail. Kittle can fail. Anyone can fail. But when we start, like, we all have our biases, and our biases tend to lead us to either, when we think about a player or a game environment, uh, we tend to kind of either lean immediately towards the positive and think about how it can succeed, or uh, we tend to lean immediately towards the negative and think about how how it can fail. And that's our bias coming into effect, right? Uh, and so, you know, any player can succeed or fail. And if there's one really good piece of advice I would try to give people, it's don't think about Try, don't think about specific outcomes. Think about ranges of outcomes. Kittle has a low floor. Kittle also has probably um, the highest ceiling on the slate at the tight end position. Or, or if not the highest, he's, you know, up there, right? He's one of the top two or three. And so, you know, I'm always on board with betting on players who have ceilings that can lap the field at their position. So we talked about this at running back with Najee, right? Like, so I'm on board with Kittle. I also, so I think there's, I think it's a light, there's a likelihood that the 49ers pass at a higher rate than they normally do. I think there's a likelihood that the 49ers um, are going, they're, they're, well, not a likelihood. They're, they're down one of their top three receivers and they're in a run, they're in a pass funnel matchup. A lot of it's going to depend on the Seahawks, right? Like we have the Seahawks, Russ Wilson, man, like what happened? Like he just looks, he has been broken. Um, and well, he's got a bro, he literally has a broken finger. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, like maybe it's better this, this week. Like he has been so atrocious. The 49ers are also a pass funnel defense, by the way, elite against the run. Um, so what I'm sort of hoping for, and I don't know if this will come to pass, but I'm going to build some tournament rosters with Russ Wilson and Tyler Lockett, uh, and then bringing it back with Ayuk or Kittle. And the hypo- the theory there is the 49ers would like to run the ball. And if the Seahawks don't put up a fight, then, you know, they might, the 49ers might be able to just kind of like play conservative, uh, you know, maybe get a, maybe get a score or two early and then just kind of play conservative with a lead, especially if the Seahawks are really struggling. The Seahawks have scored 28 points in three games since Russ Wilson came back uh, total. So, but like, I think that's also why you can get Russ Wilson at 2% ownership. Russ Wilson is at the cheapest salary we've seen him in years. Um, and no one's going to play him despite him being at the lowest salary we've seen in years. So I'm very interested in playing Russ with Lockett and then uh, and then bringing it back with Ayuk or Kittle. And the 49ers skill position players are going to be highly owned, right? People are, Kittle's ownership is decent. Ayuk's ownership is really high. Elijah Mitchell's ownership is really high. So people want to be on the 49ers offense, um, but no one seems to want to be on the Seahawks. And the 49ers offense is going to kind of need the Seahawks to push them. So I I love... I love I love Russ in a game stack situation, but I love Kittle as a as he's my favorite of the bringbacks from the 49ers because he's, he's he's the lowest owned, and all of Mitchell, Ayuk, and Kittle have tremendous ceilings in this spot. So I will always side with the guy who a has the lowest ownership, and b has the highest positional value at the hardest position to fill. Yeah, I, I missed Russ. Um, I, he's my favorite low-owned quarterback. I got him right now. I'm planning on uh, putting in about 10 11% versus that 2% ownership. Yeah. And don't forget DK Metcalf, folks. Um, mm. You know, let's talk about bias. We all watched on national TV T, uh, D, uh, DK Metcalf get, like, no love. And Lockett get all the love. But we've seen historically that bounce from game to game. 
Um, I am going to have at least as much DK Metcalf as I will Tyler Lockett in my Rust stacks. Um, and they do not play well together. They almost no. never hit a ceiling together. So if you are going to play Russ, I don't feel the need personally to um, to, to, to have uh, Russ with two. Um, yeah, I would. I'd never people. double stack Russ. Um, he tends to fixate on one of them in a given game based yep. on how they're playing in the matchup. I think I I'm okay. I will have some DK Metcalf. Um, Lockett has a higher ceiling, or at least that we've seen. Metcalf uh, is, you know, if you just look this year, the sample size is limited, but all three of Lockett's highest point outcome games are higher than any of Metcalf's. And, you know, their overall points per game is close. It's almost exactly identical as it usually is. Lockett tends to have a wider range of outcomes. Um, so Metcalf is a fine play and Metcalf has great touchdown equity. He's, you know, he, I think I think Metcalf is more likely to score two touchdowns than Lockett is. Um, but Lockett is more likely to score 40 DraftKings points than Metcalf is. I don't think we've ever seen Metcalf score 40 that's, DraftKings that's points. That's very fair. Um, the, the last thing I want to say about Kittle is he's my favorite leverage spot in the whole week because he's leverage on high-owned Ayuk, on high-owned Mitchell, mm-hmm. and high-owned Foster Moreau. Yep. So he's giving you a different build at the tight end position. So. If Foster Moreau gives you a five for 50 and no touchdowns, 10 points, and Gronk gives you, you know, five for 50, even with a touchdown, 16 points, there goes 50% of the ownership of tight end, basically, if not more. Now you get Kittle, and let's say he gives you that 30, 35 point game. And, you know, you have just with one move, that is the kind of leverage that I love, X. Yeah, I agree. This is why, like, I would avoid guys personally. Like, my general take here is, like, I don't want to play a guy like Cole Komet or Tyler Higby or Pat Fryermuth, you know, or Evan Ingram. Like, I don't want to play these guys where at, at tight end, these other cheap guys where their ceilings are 15 points um, and they're more expensive than Foster Moreau. Like, if I'm if I'm planning on going down in salary at tight end, I'd rather just play Foster Moreau. Um, and then if I'm going to go up, I'd rather go up all the way to the guys who have like the legitimate 25 plus point ceilings, where if they hit, they could just, you know, they lap the field, right? Like Gronk, Kittle, um, Goddard, uh, Goddard, much better play. I agree with you. If Hawkinson starts, was the other yeah, one I was going to ask you about. Andrews, right? Like the guys who have 25 plus yep. point ceilings where if they hit and they might, they probably won't hit, right? But like if they do... They can just, you know, put you way ahead of the field. I don't want to mess around with the guys like Komet or Higby, you know, O'Shaughnessy. Those guys are kind of like mid-tier plays. Like, I'd rather just pass on them entirely personally. The, the only one I like is Logan Thomas for the reasons you mentioned. He's on the field all the time. And um, and and the, the Raiders have a way of shutting down the wide receiver position. Logan Thomas does have a 20-plus point. Ceiling, though. I mean, it gets Seattle. Thirteen catches for a hundred and one yards down. Like Logan Thomas has a twenty-five plus point, you know, ceiling in him. So um, I agree. Uh, it's Thomas. Uh, I I like Fryermuth.
little bit more because I'm in or out. But um, I do think Fryermuth is eventually going to have that 20 to 25 point ceiling. Um, I, I, th- I do think I agree with you that it's a little less likely that we see it. Yeah. Uh, Ebron's week. on injured reserve, so he's gone. Um, I mean, Fryermuth, he had a two touchdown game and he got 21 DraftKings points. So he's he's been there. You know, he's been up around the yeah, range. Yeah. So I, 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 um, I, I, I'm, I'm keeping him in my pool. Uh, but your point is well taken that if you're going to pivot off of Foster Moreau, make sure, you know, you're getting someone because Moreau is very unlikely to break the slate, right? Like yeah. even if you get that 20 point game out of Moreau, there's so much of the field has it. You really haven't done nearly enough. Um, and so I'll be focusing my Moreau lineups with my quarterbacks, um, you know where I where I have enough leverage. I might I might come up with a rule for the optimizer where, um, you know, if Foster Moreau is in the lineup, then I want at least one of X or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that I need for Moreau to do that. Is that he's like necessary but not sufficient, right? Like you're right. He could he could be someone who you end up needing if if he gets 15 to 18 points and none of the elite tight ends get above 20 or you know low 20s. Then he he could be someone that you know he that that's his that's his win scenario. You need, right? but you're not condition. going to win because of him. You're just Correct. kind of like uh, in best ball. You've moved on to the next week, right? Yeah, survive in advance, right? That's that's kind yeah. of what I mean by, when I say necessary but not sufficient. Like you might need him, but he won't he won't get you there by himself. Right, um, and that's why you need to put a little more thought into those lineups. So the one position, yeah. well, there's two positions we haven't talked about, but the the big one is the wide receiver position. Um, do you have any overall thoughts on the position? And um, a lot of weeks you talk about how most of your wide receiver usage ends up um, being um, in game stacks. Um, and especially in a week where we're going to use running back in the flex a lot, who is, you know, the, the, you've coined the phrase, the floaters. Who are your favorite floaters this week at the wide receiver? I'm going to say I'm gonna, I prefer floating play because floaters makes me think of something that happens in the bathroom. Um, but I would say, so I will happily play Bucks pass catchers. Now I will never get that out of my brain. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, I will happily play Bucks pass catchers on any roster. Cooper Cup has a floor-ceiling combination that is just unmatched, and I will happily play anywhere. Brandon Ayuk, I will happily play anywhere. Um, this is a week though, where I honestly feel like Hilo and I talk about this sometimes about how, you know, the, the identification of good plays, like the field has gotten better at this as DFS has become more sophisticated, right? The field's generally better at saying this guy's a good play. Um, this guy's not. And it's interesting, like it's rare for there to be really bad chalk, like chalk plays that I just feel are objectively poor plays, but this week there's actually a few of them. Um, like I feel Hunter Renfro to me feels like the definition of a fear play where like Hunter Renfro's ceiling is not great. He has one game all year over 20 DraftKings points and it was like barely over 20 DraftKings points. He's a low A dot slot receiver. Um, you know, he's going to need to, he's going to need to catch like nine or 10 balls to have a chance at a ceiling. Um, Hunter Ren and it, his ownership that just feels dodgy. Josh Reynolds as one of the highest owned plays of the week is just like nauseating to me. Like I just don't get that one. Darnell Mooney has been has had a couple of good games in a row. Like and he's fine. Like then like he's not horrible, but like some of these plays are just kind of shocking to me at their ownership. Um, 
the plays I like, like the Bucks receivers, the Bengals receivers, I will play on any roster. Um, who else? Sorry, I'm just kind of like trying to ponder. Uh, Justin Jefferson is like almost always as criminally underowned, and you know this week when a week this is a week where we don't have a lot of really elite receivers. Like, if you look at receivers who could break the slate, as in put up the like you must have this score to win. Um, it's like Cooper Cup, Justin Jefferson, maybe Mike Evans, because he sometimes has those hundred plus yard multiple touchdown games. Um, like that's kind of it. Who like that's kind of it for wide receivers. I, I would who say have... I, I would add Jamar Chase is that as that kind of skill set, um, and he's currently showing six point five percent ownership. So I yeah. would throw him okay. into that that's, mix, and then uh, the fair. Seattle. He's got a he's got, he has two over thirty, two games over thirty. So that's that's fair. I think not, I think, not, not bad for a ten game career. Yeah. yeah so I, know, right? I I would say that um, low owned. You know, we talked about. I promised that we would do low owned guys who could break the slate. I think Jamar Chase, but I want Chase with a um, Chargers piece. Um, I, I, I that's me. I, I want him with Eckler. I want him with Mike Williams. Um, you know, I, I know Mike Williams has been incredibly frustrating, but there's nothing worse than playing a guy five, six weeks in a row, and then the week you don't play him. I mean, what's his ownership? Let me look. He still has upside, right? Like, he hasn't – he's not bad. It's that he. It's that they've moved him into a different role, right? Like, he opened the year in this sort of ex-receiver role where his volume was way up and he was just smashing. Uh, they put him in your role? Yeah. That's, uh, and he was smashing like every week. And and then they moved him back to sort of his old sort of like perimeter deep threat receiver role. Um, and and then surprise, surprise, the Chargers whole offense started floundering at that point. Um, and then, you know, he's just, but I think he still has upside in that deep role, right? Like he's more volatile in that role. It's not that he can't hit, um, but he's just, he's a little more volatile. His targets have gone down as well, right? Like the first few games in the season, like 12, 10, 9, 16. And then since then, like 5, 5, 6, 6, 8. So his volume has gone down. But those things don't mean that he doesn't have a ceiling. They mean that he has a shakier floor, right? And what we care about in tournaments is, is you know, we should care about both. But we need, we more care about ceiling. So I think you know Williams is fine as a tournament play. He's not he's not like a core piece I want to have an, a huge amount of, but like as a tournament play in my Chargers Bengals, you know, correlate correlations, I will definitely have that. Um I will definitely have Mike Williams. Uh, I, I and I'll throw Hollywood Brown into that mix of guys yeah. that I don't mind floating. Um I I feel like you know if that game does blow up um, and they've gotten him more involved with shorter things, as we talked about in the edge um, and he's coming in at under 5% ownership, I think, uh, you know, as a last piece, um, he's a guy that I certainly didn't, don't, wouldn't mind putting in lineups. Brown has more games of 10 or more targets than he has games of fewer than 10 targets this season. Um, you know, this was like, that's the a great Ravens, stat. Yeah, the Ravens' offense is quietly evolving. And, you know, they were what we got used to thinking of the Ravens as for the last couple of years is this incredibly low pass volume offense. And they're still not a super high pass volume offense, but Lamar is averaging 34 attempts per game, 
um, this season after average, I think he averaged under 30 last year, if I remember right. I have to go look it up to find out exactly. But um, so we're seeing more pass attempts and we're, and we're seeing more concentration, right? They're not running their like six different tight ends and their rotational circus of 12 wide receivers or whatever, right? Like we're seeing more concentration and so there's more concentration to Mark Andrews, to Hollywood Brown, and then, and then a little bit less so to Rashad Bateman. Um, I also was, honestly, I was a little concerned that Bateman might eat into Marquise Brown's uh, ceiling, but that hasn't really been the case, right? Since Bateman became a full-time receiver in week nine, uh, Bateman's seen eight, eight, six, and four targets, so pretty healthy target volume for a rookie wide receiver. But Brown has seen more than 10 targets in every single game since Bateman moved into that full-time role. So it's, it, Bateman does not appear to be eating into Brown. The offense is just becoming more concentrated. And... You know, Mark Andrews has seen 10, 8, 10, and 10 targets in the last four games as well. So, yeah, like, I I mean, the Ravens pass catchers, I think sometimes we have to, like, we talked about bias, right? Sometimes we have to set aside our past bias and say, like, we need to reevaluate. This Ravens offense does not appear to be this, like, you know, this 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 only run offense where uh you know where you know Marquise Brown or whatever whatever receiver is going to need to get there on six targets like that was how it was last year where you know Brown or Andrews like it was rare for any any receiver to get to double digit targets in the Ravens and this week you know sorry this week this year we've had you know Brown has more double digit target more weeks of double digit targets than not uh Mark Andrews has four weeks of double digit targets and five weeks of single digit targets like we're seeing more concentration in their in their top skill position players uh but the field isn't recognizing that based on how they're playing them um you know mark andrews is projected for incredibly low ownership this week and i think marquise brown is no i don't think he's as low as andrews but he's really low four or five percent four four point five on etr yeah Um, the three wide receivers with the best leverage score on fantasy labs is um, Christian Kirk, Devonta Smith, and Marquise Brown. Yeah. Now, we haven't talked about that Arizona-Chicago game at all, X. Um, why don't you throw out a, th- a few thoughts on that game? Uh, I mean, realistically, I'm not really playing much of that game, so my thoughts are pretty limited, to be totally honest. Like, it's a 42-point total game, and I just generally don't go out of my way to play a bunch of players from a 42-point total game. Um, Especially with the spread, dis, um, a spread, you know, it, it's like uh, the 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 wheel of time. You know, it spins, and which Cardinal receiver is it going to be this week? Uh, I do think DeAndre Hopkins is interesting. Um, he's only showing two point four percent ownership. I, I think he is a guy who could break the slate at low ownership. Yeah, I don't hate Hopkins. Like, Hopkins is interesting. He's he's another guy who like he's at one of his lowest prices that we've like ever seen for him. Um, and he hasn't had a big game. Like his biggest game this year is 26 DraftKings points. Right. Um, but he's another guy who's been really close, like one more catch away from that hundred yard bonus. And that's an extra point. Like, you know, he, he could, uh, get there. It's a positive matchup for him. He presents great leverage off of, um, James Connor. Um, so I'm just okay, like, say that, yep. assuming he plays and now if he misses that also then sort of reduces the merry the, the Cardinals receiver merry around a little bit. Um, and it would, that would then have me more, a little more interested in Christian Kirk. Um, but other than that, like, I really just want to play James Conner from that game. And that's kind of it. Like, it's just, it's a low total. Yeah, game. I, I, I love the Conner play. 
and um, I could use it for best ball. That's for sure. Um, all right. <laughs> yeah, so, um, game and I, still don't, I, don't I have just want to make sure that I didn't miss any good leverage spots. I, th- I Hopkins almost slipped through. I'm glad yeah, that, that we good, caught that him right catch. at the I end like there. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I don't like playing guys coming off. Of, I don't mind playing guys coming off certain injuries. But hamstring is an injury that I don't like playing someone first week back because we see it all the time where they aggravate it. The re-injury. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's you know, tough for me. I, I understand your perspective. My, like, my perspective, the way I play, is I'm not a doctor. I have no expertise in sports medicine. My general approach is if a guy is playing, uh, I assume they're healthy. Unless I have very specific information to the contrary, um, I assume they're healthy. And it's not that like I'm never wrong about that. I am wrong about that sometimes. But it's that I don't have any way of evaluating if I'm going to be right or wrong. And so it's just a guess. Well, just a and guessing. in a way, and in a way, it doesn't matter, right? Because he's low. If, if we if we had that certainty, he, you know. So I'm going to have to take my own medicine. If 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 we knew that he was healthy, he wouldn't be you know three or four percent owned. And six, you know, sixty-two hundred dollars. Yeah, he'd be like eight or ten percent, presumably. Correct. So um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I'm sorry I cut you off, but oh, it's uh, okay. No, it's okay. I, I, I said the same I, thing I, I was going to say. Know, we're we're at an hour and a half, and I, I, I I'm going to try and land the ship in the next ten or fifteen minutes. Yeah, I actually have a kid's birthday party to get to pretty soon, so if we all right, we so let's go up. to everyone's favorite defense, and I'm going to hey. start. By mentioning um, something that Mark um, Hilo and I talked about today, and he kind of, I had pushed him on one of these uh, earlier in the year, uh, a Brady, um, I forget which one it was, but I do think Brady with one buck, or Hilo was saying with zero bucks, but playing the Tampa Bay defense, and I think you could do the same thing with the Rams and play the Rams with Stafford mm-hmm. because we're not, especially in lineups where there's not going to be a bringback X. I love that. I, and I don't, I haven't heard anyone in the industry talk about it. I think that's a wonderful opportunity because we're planning on that game being a blowout, but we're going to play it anyway because of the high team total. Well, a way to get to kind of supercharge that a bit is to add the defense from the team that is supposed to do the blowout. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We we've seen this a few times over the years. There have been Millie Maker winners that have been like an onslaught <clears throat> from one team. The Steelers have been uh, been have done it a couple times, where it's like quarterback, running back, pass catcher, and defense. Um, and it's, you're basically just betting that this team just absolutely crushes their opponent. Um, excuse me. And if you want to think about sort of like how that works, what you imagine here is multiple turnovers, but those turnovers aren't necessarily returned for scores. They are instead, uh, they give the, uh, they give the Rams, you know, short yardage and then Stafford. So Stafford throws for five touchdowns in the first half because he's given short fields several times. Right. Um, and so Stafford gets four or five touchdowns in the first half. Uh, so the Rams skill position players go nuts, um, but the Rams defense also gets four or five turnovers and, you know, and sacks, and then maybe they get a defensive touchdown later in the game or something, right? Like it sounds weird, um, but we've seen that pay off multiple times. And to your point, no one plays that or very few. 
Um, but we've definitely seen that win, win the Millie Maker on more than one occasion, like a full team onslaught with the quarterback and like a couple skill position players and the defense. Um, because the, if the defense gets multiple turnovers, you just they're setting up short fields over and over, and then the offense can just score really easily. And that means they're winning the time of possession battle. They're, they have, they get a lot of extra drives um, <clears throat> by by you know, through turnovers. So like it can it can definitely play out. So Rams D is the second. And and you also normally see these teams that have sixteen or seventeen point totals tend to have quarterbacks who are mistake prone. Yeah, usually. Yeah. Um, all yeah, right. So, so I'll, defi- I'll definitely play the- Rams D. Um, and I'll happily play him with Stafford. Yeah. All right. So Chalk D, is, and, and, and one of the leverage on Tampa Bay is that they are priced right near the Chalk defense of the Dolphins. I mean, I don't know that Mike Glennon is any more turnover prone than Daniel Jones. Um but in general, I don't like to play 18 to 20% on defenses unless, you know, I'll play 5 6%, but that's – I kind of cap it. That's how I do it. How how are you handling that defense this week? Yeah, I, so I will – I, I, I will definitely play the Dolphins D um, because they are an aggressive – defense that has very much been sort of coming into their own in the last several weeks and they're an aggressive blitz happy defense against a backup quarterback now glennon has not been atrocious in his career um he started 27 nfl games in his career and he's thrown 27 interceptions so on average right he's he's thrown one pick a game which is not awesome, but it's not like horrendous, right? It's not like he's throwing, he's not Nathan Peterman, right? So he's not Daniel Jones. He's not, yeah, he's, let's see. Actually, now, I want, now I'm curious. How many, how, how many does Daniel Jones average? I'm going to go look it up real quick. Um, Daniel Jones is, uh, Daniel, actually, Daniel Jones has 37 game starts and 29 interceptions, so he's averaging slightly under. Yeah, well, but Daniel, but Daniel Jones, Jones uh, adds in more fumbles than the, the gross national product of Brazil. Yeah, Daniel Jones uh, has a much higher sack percentage than London. Um, but the Dolphins' defense is fine, right? Like, they're a good defense, and here's where I have a trouble. Here's where I have trouble with chalk defenses. Where I have trouble with chalk defenses is when they're a bad defense or um, a, a just a defense where you're hoping to get seven or eight points and like the punt defense where you're like, gee, if I get seven or eight points, I'll call it good. And it's like, that's cool that you're happy with that. Meanwhile, the guy who got 20 points from his defense is actually winning the tournament. And you're, you pat yourself on the back for your seven or eight points. Um, but you, you know, the guy with 20 is winning the tournament and you're not. So, you know, I'm a little, I'm more okay with embracing ownership at a defense when I think that that defense has a realistic chance of being, you know, the highest scoring or, you know, one of the two or three highest scoring defenses on the slate. And, you know, currently the Dolphins defense is projected for the most points in the slate, the highest ceiling on the slate. So I feel like I, I can't just write them off entirely. Um, but I do like Bucks D as, as a smart pivot from them. Um, I do like, and I like, I'll always play, I'll always play defenses against the Jets and the Phil, the Eagles are an aggressive defense. Um, I've been, I, I will always be overweight defenses against the Jets. And that's been like a maxim I've followed for years. Um, and then I'll play Rams D and I'll play Ravens D. Um, definitely, I definitely want to play Ravens D against the turnstile Pittsburgh offensive line and immobile Ben Roethlisberger. 
Um, and then I'll play some San Francisco D based on the maybe Russ is just dead. Like maybe that finger is 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 killing him, and he can't throw, and is in so much pain that he can't like throw the ball accurately. Whatever, right? But Russ has been so bad that I feel like it'd be a mistake not to at least have some exposure to the to the giant to the eh, Giants to the 49ers defense um, against him. Like he has just been. He's been one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL in the last three weeks. And so it doesn't make sense to me to not play a defense that targets one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL. And I hate saying it about him because I love Russ Wilson. Um, and I will be, I'll be playing Russ Wilson, but I'm going to play both sides of that. I'm, def- I'm going to definitely have some, some 49ers defense. So just once again, my, my defense player pool um, for 150 entries is Miami, Philly, um, Tampa, Rams, Baltimore, San Francisco, and those six. Those six are my player are my defense if, pool. If my arm got twisted by a lineup to where I just felt I needed to play someone under twenty seven or hundred this week, the only one that I have any interest in is Detroit at home against Minnesota. We've seen Kirk Cousins throw pick sixes. Um, it's not an ideal. Um, Defense by any measure, but that's one that I am leaving uh, open in the optimizer. Their pass rush has been good. It's worth noting that Kirk Cousins has only thrown three interceptions in the year. Um, that, that is why I know. Um, but I will. But when but when he blows up, he blows up uh, uh, fabulously, and 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 yeah. it, it's never oh, it's never been when you know you, uh, when you think it's going to happen. I mean, normally it's when he's on national TV. Um, but um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't I mean, love the Lions, but uh, in, in my research, uh, that was the only one that I would. You know, I want to give at least one name in a low price to our listeners. Yeah, I think you could. There's a couple others that I think you could consider including. If Kyler Murray misses and we get Colt McCoy again, I think it's. I think the Chicago defense is viable to consider. Yeah. Um, yeah. Colt McCoy has actually been pretty good this year. But like, I'll trust the I'll trust the years long set of data we have on him to say that he's in fact not very good. Um, I think you could consider the Jets' defense against Gardner Minshew if uh, if if Hertz misses. Um, again, Jets' defense not good, but backup quarterback and Gardner Minshew has has been very up and down in his career. He's he's had some success, and remember he was like a trend for a while where he was like. He's he's a gunslinger and gunslingers yeah. throw picks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He is, you know, he's he takes risks and those risks sometimes pay off for him and they sometimes pay off for the opposing defense. Um and then I would say the Seattle defense is another one you could consider if you're trying to go cheap, because bad Jimmy Garoppolo can be as bad as any quarterback in the league when he doesn't have it together. I mean Jimmy G that that is one too, yep. Yeah, Jimmy G will will have those you know three four interception games and and he it's a, that's another one we haven't seen this year. I think he has a two interception game. Um, I think he, but I think he also he has a game with like two interceptions and two fumbles. Um, but he's you know he's another guy who uh, can have his ups and downs. It's fair to say. Um, so well, there's a couple and, of those and you mo- can mostly up. <laughs> it, most exactly. of his passes, you know, he has a tendency to when he doesn't set his feet and he rushes, he throws the ball high. He floats him. He's and that and that's how you get pretty serviceable this year. But if you kind of if you if you go back to what we had said before, the things you have to believe to play the Seattle defense, you have to believe that uh, that Russ isn't broken because you need Seattle to be playing from ahead in order to force the Niners into a pass heavier game script. Um, and so I think there's actually a lot of leverage if you play the Seattle defense to play it with another Seattle player. 
um, because you have to think that like Seattle scores points in order to force the 49ers into that sort of comeback mode. Like Jimmy G has only exceeded 30 pass attempts twice on the year. Um, they don't want him to throw. They know he's not great. They don't want him to throw a lot unless they really are trying to catch up. And so, you know, I think you need him in that catch up mode in order for the Seattle defense to really pay off. Um, well, they traded up for Mac Jones so that, uh, oh, wait, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny. Um, I'm a 49ers fan, and I remember when the rumors were that they were going to draft Mac Jones, and I was like, no, why would you do that? No, why wouldn't you draft Trey Lance? And they drafted Trey Lance, and I felt so good about it. And then, like, here we are. Mac Jones is, like, clearly the offensive rookie of the year and has looked capable in every way. And Trey Lance is... Yeah, well, my my favorite thing is how everyone last... You know, one of my... It's the best thing for best ball and for DFS, you know, but when you watch it on Twitter, sometimes it gets aggravating, you know, watching what the crowd does. And as a, a giant fan, uh, all the way back to the 80s, I know how good Bill Belichick is. But last year, if you were on Twitter when Brady won the Super Bowl, it was, well, you know, it, 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 I guess it was Brady all along. And I'm like, no, no. And, uh, you know, and now you've given Bill Belichick a chance to regroup. And uh, you could see that they were a great partnership. And that's why they won, because they, they, they both um, you know, we're, we're just the best ever, so to speak. Yeah. The Patriots have been a surprise to me this year, but like, they are good. Right. I mean, they are like, I, I thought they would be better. Um, I didn't think, you know, but it was hard to discern the quarterback position, right? That was my biggest question. Um, I thought that Judon was going to be a really good addition. I had a good bit of their defense in, uh, um, the best ball where you actually pick defense. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I don't want to keep going on uh, tangents like yeah, that. Yeah, we should um, move on. <laughs> I think that <laughs> we got it to an hour and 45 minutes, and I think it's time we bring Aaron back in to see if there's any questions. Todd, I just want to say thank you for jumping in at the last minute. This was this was us literally pinging Todd 10 minutes before this started, saying, you know, by any chance are you available? Um, because Hilo can't make it. And Todd jumped in, you know, with no notice, no prep, uh, just, you know, coming in to to help us kind of get through the show. Um, so thank you so much, Todd, for being willing to. Oh, I, I really in. enjoyed it. And anytime you guys yeah. need. Uh, I second need, that. Uh, I know, second that. Todd. I that bring, was huge I'm today to step to up. Um, just so you guys know, uh, awesome on Hilo, um, he's having to put his dog down today um, after uh, 12 years. And it was going to happen Monday, but things took a turn for the worst um today right before the show so um todd stepped in and it was uh a good show so we appreciate todd jumping in i don't think we have any questions so if anybody wants to raise their hand um come on up here or we will uh call tonight and let you guys start uh building some lineups here i see one on the on the chat i do see one question um Oh, thank you, Sonic. Um, but Shippet33 is asking X, what mid to high-priced wide receiver pairings have the highest likelihood of paying off together in general or on the slate? Uh, so when you say pairings, what I assume, and I, know, I don't know if this is your what you're intending to say, um, but I'm assuming what you're saying is players from the same game, players who are correlated, because otherwise you could just take the two highest. He's sitting on the same team. On the same team. Okay. 
Um, probably. Probably Godwin and Evans. 6, yeah, it's probably Godwin and Evans. 6,700, 6,600. Yeah, it's, I think it's Godwin and Evans. So I'm just trying to like kind of think it through. Like Keenan Allen and Mike Williams – it's tough because Allen needs so much volume to hit because he's not like a deep threat at all. And so if he's hogging all that volume, it's unlikely that Williams is getting enough, but they're possible. Um, Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen are priced at a point where it would take really outlier performances for them both hit to both to hit together. Lockett and Metcalf, as we discussed, rarely hit together historically. Um, Godwin and Evans. I, I got one more. Yeah, Godwin and Evans, we have seen hit together. Uh, another option would be T. Higgins and Jamar Chase, and that would be a really low-owned pairing if you're stacking that game. Um, Tyler Boyd is very much a low upside receiver in that offense, and if the Chargers take a lead and, force, and the Bengals are playing much more through the air than I think that Chase and Higgins. Um, but I, I, the, the, the likeliest outcome would be, would be Godwin and Evans. I'll throw in o, uh, Odell Beckham with Van Jefferson. Oh um, man, I kind of love that. I think, yeah, I think that that is a really and, and that Cup was one that Mark mentioned in our conversation earlier today. And um, you know, if, if they focus on shutting down Cooper Cup and Beckham is healthy, um, I, I think that you definitely can get um, ceiling games out of two out of three of those wide receivers. I kind of love that, like double pairing. That's sort of awesome. I'm a fan. Yep. Any anybody else want to step up and ask a question? If not, I am going to let X go, and um, I'm going to thank all of you for listening. And uh, I really, I really enjoyed getting the chance to do this. Yeah, this was awesome. Again, thank you, Todd, uh, just for jumping in. All right, no questions. That's I guess that's a good thing, and. Uh, uh, you know, I hope that um, Mark doesn't have to put his lineups down tomorrow. Um, and I'm sorry that he had to go through that with his doggo. That, that's got to be tough. So, Mark, our thoughts are with you. And uh, I guess that's going to do it for today. And uh, hopefully you will be there with us tomorrow on the top of the leaderboard. That's going to do it, folks. Have a great day.